Does bulletproof coffee stop autophagy? Grass-fed butter. Is it better to bulk up fast with carbohydrates or do it slowly on keto? You've got fat. Does elevating IGF-1 and mTOR accelerate aging or do they actually make you more prone to neurodegeneration and a shorter life? These are some of the few questions of this Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and we're going to have another Q&A episode. This time, I decided to focus primarily on these anabolic pathways like mTOR or mammalian target of rapamycin and how it affects your longevity. mTOR and IGF-1 make you anabolic and grow, but for longevity, you want to know how to balance it with other things like autophagy and AMPK. So, most of the questions in this episode will be around these topics. I think it's that kind of information that like everyone needs to know, because it's literally going to determine how long you're going to live, and uh, also what kind of a life you're going to have. It's necessary. If you want to support this podcast, then I decided to open up a Patreon account, just so I could have like some sort of a feedback for, from the audience. I didn't decide to bring any sponsors to the podcast for at least the time being because I think uh, community support is like much more sustainable and uh, it's much more effective as well. If I didn't get any value from it myself or some, uh, some positive encouragement, then uh, I would stop making it. So if you found any value from these episodes and whether from my YouTube videos or whatever it may be from my books, then you, I would definitely encourage you to support the podcast on Patreon. But without further ado, let's now delve into this world of mTOR and IGF-1 and esophagy. Do you want to know what it is? Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. The first question is a long one and it goes like this. On a recent Peter Atia podcast, he talked to Rhonda Patrick. They discussed the IGF-1 issue. Currently, it seems a lot of people advocate for chronically low IGF-1, such as you would get from chronic caloric restriction and a low-protein vegan diet. This supposedly reduces one's chance for cancer and premature aging. However, Peter mentioned that perhaps IGF-1 cycling is the most optimal strategy. For it's, for it's important for muscle growth and I also think brain neurogenesis. You may be onto something there. Those on a calorie restriction diet suffered a decrease in grey brain matter. Whoa. I was hoping if you could do a brief discussion on what your strategy for IGF-1 management is and if you believe chronically low IGF-1 or cycling is the most optimal strategy. Yeah, like, it's a good question and I think... <laughs> Another one of those really important questions for longevity and uh, overall health. Uh, So yeah, there is indeed a lot of fear around IGF-1, mTOR, protein and eating meat as well. Which is uh, one of the main ideas why people say that it's better to keep IGF-1 low. I agree that you don't want to be anabolic and uh, with high mTOR or IGF-1 all the time. Chronically high levels of IGF-1, they may indeed kind of speed up aging and it may cause some cancers if you're predisposed or if you already have some cancer cells. IGF-1 is uh, stimulated by the main growth pathway in the body called mammalian target of rapamycin or mTOR. However, I think mTOR giving you cancer is only going to happen if you already have signs of cancer or some tumors growing. 
chronically low levels of IGF-1 and mTOR will also be bad for longevity because they play an important role in maintaining lean muscle mass, building brain cells, supporting nerve cell functioning, strengthening bones, and so on. IGF-1 can actually protect the cells against oxidative stress, and uh, it regulates glutathione, which is one of the main antioxidant pathways in the body. Inhibiting IGF-1 in other species like worms and mice extends their lifespan, but uh, the results in humans are inconsistent and they're not clear by any means. The crazy thing about it is that both high as well as low levels of IGF-1 are associated with cancer mortality in older men. In fact, uh, one meta-analysis of 12 studies with over 14,000 participants found that people with low levels of IGF-1 were at a 1.27 times risk of dying, and those with higher levels were at a 1.18 times the risk. Lower levels of IGF-1 may actually be more detrimental because as you age, you'll be more predisposed to muscle loss and bone fractures. A lot of studies also find an association with low IGF-1 and sarcopenia in older people. IGF-1 is also correlated with longer telomere length, which is an important predictor of longevity. Telomeres are these protective caps on top of your chromosomes that protect your DNA from uh, deterioration. mTOR and IGF-1 are needed for repairing telomeres through the activity of telomerase. That's why there's this dichotomy between having enough IGF-1 for muscle and cellular maintenance versus not dying to the proliferation of cancerous tumors. IGF-1 has many benefits in the brain as well. It improves memory and learning, increases mental processing in older people, raises BDNF, has antidepressant and anti-anxiety effects, prevents the accumulation of beta-amyloid plaques found in Alzheimer's, prevents cognitive decline in rats, and uh, people with low IGF-1 are more likely to suffer from dementia and symptoms of cognitive decline. IGF-1 deficiencies are linked to different types of growth failures such as dwarfism and growth retardation, especially in younger children. IGF-1 is also critical for healing and recovery. When you have low IGF-1, then you tend to increase inflammation because of lack of antioxidants and re repair processes. IGF-1 stimulates collagen synthesis and prevents aging of the skin. However, too much IGF-1 and mTOR may actually cause acne and rashes. In healthy individuals, IGF-1 expression would be balanced by the IGF-1 binding protein or IGF-BP. It's gonna block IGF-1's effects or directs it into the right, right places. That's why IGF-1 is bad only if you have too much free serum IGF-1 in the blood. That's why I have to agree that IGF-1 in some people may contribute to disease and aging because their body doesn't need that much IGF-1 or mTOR for recovery. If the person is going to use IGF-1 to promote either muscle growth or repair themselves from resistance training, then uh, they're going to actually simply clear out IGF-1 from their blood very fast and it's not going to cause any issues. This is also one of the reasons why I think that people like Walter Longo say that you should uh, restrict your animal protein and suppress IGF-1. He is doing uh, research mostly on old people who aren't lifting weights or they aren't exercising at all, so their, their bodies aren't capable of handling higher levels of IGF-1. The problems begin to rise only when people raise mTOR and IGF-1 
when their body doesn't need it and they do it frequently throughout the day all the time. That's why I think it's critical to have some sort of intermittent fasting in your day, no matter what, because it's going to lower IGF-1 by default and it's going to make you more sensitive to its effects in the future. You shouldn't spike mTOR and IGF-1 first thing in the morning because your body doesn't have any real need for anabolism at that time. You just woke up and uh, you would be much better to stay in a state of autophagy for much longer, which is going to help counterbalance the effects of mTOR and IGF-1. Like I said, you want to keep these anabolic pathways suppressed for the most of the time and then elevate them only after a resistance training workout when you actually need them or you elevate them when you're trying to support your growth. For instance, when you're you know, trying to build muscle or when you're, you're like a growing organism. At that time, you're going to use mTOR for the positive benefits like building muscle and strength instead of promoting it for disease. Limiting your protein and animal foods can also lower your IGF-1, but uh, it may happen at the expense of other fat-soluble vitamins and minerals found from animal foods. Chronic protein and mineral deficiencies will accelerate aging again by making you lose muscle and bone strength. That's why I also think that you would want to limit your animal protein intake during the day like you do with time-restricted feeding. If you eat only like two meals a day with 16 to 20 hours fasting, then you would want to raise mTOR with your two meals and eat enough protein because you've been fasting for longer. If you're not fasting and eating like three meals with 12 hours of not eating, then uh, you would benefit by limiting your animal protein just a little bit because you're not fasting. But uh, it's not so good on the plant-based side of the camp either. High amounts of carbs and blood sugar, they tend to lead to higher levels of insulin, which will still elevate mTOR and IGF-1 to a certain extent. This is not necessarily a bad thing because you need mTOR for healthy aging and maintaining muscle, but you know, still, there's still a point of diminishing returns. Building more lean muscle when you're young and keeping it as you age is probably the most important things for increasing your health span as well as your lifespan. When you're older, you may not want to chronically elevate IGF-1, but uh, it's still beneficial. So the key is to still keep yourself physically active, especially with resistance training, to keep your body more mTOR sensitive, and also incorporate intermittent fasting so that you would have times of low mTOR and high autophagy. mTOR is going to suppress autophagy, but autophagy is one of those pathways that is directly linked to increased lifespan in many species. It's not the caloric restriction, it's not the intermittent fasting per se, it's autophagy that, that's going to make it happen. It's the mechanism that is driving these processes of longevity. That's why I think it's not so black and white with IGF-1. You do want to make sure that you express IGF-1 at the right time in the right places, such as your brain cells, muscles and bone matrix, instead of your fat cells, amyloid plaques and uh, malignant cells. If you're not predisposed to some sort of a disease and you don't have cancer, then you don't have much to worry about dying because of having IGF-1. Elevating IGF-1 above a safe limit is also very difficult unless you're taking like growth hormone supplements, anabolic steroids, or you have insulin resistance or you're eating copious amounts of unneeded protein. IGF-1 is associated with greater risk of mortality and accelerated aging, but at the same time, IGF-1 helps to prevent those things and it's going to support quality health span. Whatever the case may be, for optimal health, longevity, muscle growth and performance, you want to balance IGF-1 and you want to know how to cycle it. 
based on current research and understanding human physiology, you can say that the best range for IGF-1 is somewhere in the middle, wherein you're not constantly under the effects of IGF-1, but you're not suffering from its abstinence either. The best takeaway, I think, is that you want to keep IGF-1 relatively low, but activate it only in specific situations where the growth effects will contribute to your longevity by supporting muscle hypertrophy and cellular repair. That's why I'm practicing both intermittent fasting and resistance training. It's going to boost natural growth hormone while giving me the other life extension benefits. If you want to know how to understand these pathways better and learn how to manipulate them, then check out my KetoFit program. I'll also leave a link to the article that is going to talk about all these different pathways like mTOR, autophagy, AMPK and IGF-1. So the, these are like one of the important ones. Come with me if you want to live. Next up, I'm going to be playing a clip from uh, a recent live stream I did on the Biohacker Summit live show with uh, Demo Arena. We're going to be talking more closely about how mTOR and autophagy work and how to activate them. So stay tuned for that. Like the superorganism as your body is, it's always constantly trying to detect the presence of nutrients in, in your system. And uh, based on that, based on those nutrients, it's going to either, you know, conduct these certain metabolic processes, namely like anabolism or catabolism. Is it going to promote uh, DNA replication and cellular growth? Uh, or is it going to actually try to preserve its own resources and mobilize the resources it already has? So it, in, in, in hopes of, you know, surviving for longer. So there's this always constantly your body is also constantly looking out for these different nutrients in your system. And uh, the main signaling factors or the fuel sensors that are detecting this are like uh, mTOR and uh, AMPK. So mTOR is the main anabolic pathway of, of the human body, which is going to promote like uh, things like protein synthesis, cellular growth, and everything that is related to growing and uh, being anabolic, so to say. And the opposite to that is AMPK, which is another fuel sensor that gets elevated when you run out of uh, nutrients and when you run out of your body's endogenous energy, so to say. So there's this constant, uh, constantly, constant process of monitoring. And whenever you do run out of you know, your body's own internal resources, then AMPK is going to trigger this other metabolic pathway called uh, autophagy, which is, uh, which is the process of cellular recycling basically your your healthy cells they're going to start uh, searching out for old and worn out cells to convert it back into energy so it's your body eating itself so that it can uh, survive for longer and get the energy it needs from the cells that it's not using so those are the so that these are the pathways that are responsible for growing and uh, repair so there is things like exercise that contribute to amp PK and and that leads then uh, to to a cascade of effects, uh, including fatty acid metabolism, fatty yeah. acid synthesis, you, autophagy, you... and protein synthesis through mTOR. If I understand correctly from this, uh, what is key here is uh, um, things like energy starvation. I guess that le uh, that basically points to fasting. And mm -hmm. uh, are are you saying that with intermittent fasting, you can activate AMPK, AMPK and, and that can lead into um, 
triggering the pathways that are helping you to maintain the homeostasis and uh, to to potentially uh, support your longevity. Yeah, that's 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 correct. And uh, that actually is the, you know one of the most surest ways, or one of the few ways scientists actually know how to prolong lifespan in any species is through uh, intermittent fasting and caloric restriction. So those are the things that have been found to expand the lifespan of like yeast by 100% almost and even more. So that's like double their lifespan if they, if they consume less, less calories. And in monkeys, monkeys can live also like 40% longer if they're fed fewer, fewer calories. So the, probably the same, same principle applies to humans as well in, in some extent. But uh, the, 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 one of the biggest culprits or one of the biggest uh, you know, mistakes people tend to make is that they kind of put caloric restriction and intermittent fasting into the same pot. Although they have like similar benefits and the similar mechanisms, you can, you can be eating very little calories without you know, activating the health benefits of autophagy just because of your feeding yourself all the time. So they've actually done a few studies where they show that, that uh, the, the, one of the most important uh, factors that contribute to increased lifespan are linked to autophagy and not necessarily caloric restriction, you need autophagy to gain the longevity benefits. For instance, they had did some studies with mice where they genetically mutated them so that they wouldn't be able to activate autophagy. And they found out that those mice didn't live longer. And whereas the other mice who did have you know, the autophagy genes uh, available, those mice were still able to live longer. So the key is to still being able to activate autophagy without necessarily having to deprive yourself from calories all the time, or, as, or at least as, not as much as you would think you need. You can still eat very much calories, maintain a lot of muscle mass, and uh, still activate autophagy by you know, being very diligent and very cautious with your time, time, uh, timing of your feeding, and still gain the benefits of longevity. At least that's, that's one of my theories, because you don't want to deprive yourself from calories for too long because you're going to potentially lose a lot of muscle mass, which is another you know, problematic thing when it comes to longevity. One of the reasons people die is because they're losing a lot of their muscle mass, and in so doing, they're also sacrificing a lot of their metabolic health and uh, their bone strength and uh, things like that. So people, people age because of sarcopenia, which is linked to a lot of like, uh, problems with metabolism and neurodegenerative issues and not not elevating mTOR enough, you need, you need mTOR as well for longevity to maintain your lean muscle mass and you never want to deprive yourself for too long. So the key is to find this balance between autophagy and mTOR and to know how can you activate these genes at specific times that contribute both to your longevity and uh, muscle, muscle maintenance. Okay, so um, let's dive deep into, deeper into caloric restriction and intermittent fasting itself. Um, it's often when people change their diets into a more fat-based diet, um, it's, it can be easier for them actually to uh, then restrict the amount of calories that they're eating because fat gives them a more steady fuel source. So a good example might be uh, a, some kind of drink like coffee or tea with some fat in the morning. And mm-hmm. it's very satisfying, so you kind of easily uh, skip um, any snacks that you might be craving for, 
Uh, so you're not getting into this yo-yo effect of of uh, being constantly hungry um, uh, with the crashes of blood sugar. So that kind of leads easier for people uh, with um, higher fat diets um, into uh, caloric restriction. Yeah, it's like I mentioned, it's it's super easy for people to simply start off by skipping some meals every once in a while to have these periods where they go into a deeper state of autophagy and a deeper state of ketosis. Those are one of the things that everyone can start off by, you know, not feeling obligated to eat just because their doctor told them to, or just because they think it's going to be good for them. Whereas in reality, skipping a meal may actually be much more beneficial in the, in the long run. So yeah, what I tend to advise for most people is to practice intermittent fasting, at least in some shape or form every day. And uh, that's going to be super convenient for, you know, body composition as well as productivity. And, you know, generally, yeah, I mean, um, being more act or activating more of those pathways towards longevity, like autophagy and uh, things like that. But when it comes to balancing out with mTOR, then you can do it on a daily basis very free, very easily. And I do it myself on a daily basis. So what I do is I extend my fasting window every day, at least until like, you know, 18 or 20 hours. And then I eat my calories in a smaller time frame, maybe within like two to two to four hours uh, at, at usually. So that's like a really good balance, in my opinion. And at minimum, it would be people would want to fast for maybe like yeah 16 hours every day to gain these benefits of going into at least like some mild autophagy and 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 to, and to combine it together to actually you know have the mTOR pathway directed towards the right place which is to build you know muscle tissue and drive protein synthesis then i will also work out before i actually eat any food so that the resistance training and lifting weights that's going to activate mm. the mTOR pathway and that's going to drive the food that you do eat into the right spot, so to say. And you're going to use it for more uh, quality anabolism and uh, quality muscle gain instead of like fat, fat, fat gain or something. Right, right. Uh, doesn't also activate the GLUT4 receptor on cells so that they, they shovel the circulating glucose into, into the muscle yeah. instead of somewhere else? Yeah that's, yeah, that's true. Like even like very short contractions of maximum effort like doing isometric holes <laughs> with some push-ups or something like that in a plank hold, that's going to also already activate some GLUT4 receptors on your muscles, which are going to go, you know, which are going to help incident direct uh, the sugar and uh, the food into the into the cells much faster and replenish glycogen. Be the kind of call it kind of like a minimum effective dose, so. Uh, probably with exercise, you don't mean that you need to go for a 30 minute <laughs> gym thing or, or, yeah. or just running around. So, uh, what, what's your protocol? Let's say you're in a restaurant, you've been fasting and you decide to have a huge meal with some, uh, you know, some sweet potatoes and you have some rice and all kinds of things. You're getting some glucose. It's evening now. Um, what kind of exercise protocol would you do that when you come to the table, uh, that the other people are not going to look look at you like what's going on here, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, generally, for the GLUT4 receptors, even as little as maybe like uh, like 90 seconds of of uh, exercise of some resistance training can activate the GLUT4 receptors and uh, you know make you more insulin sensitive. 
but uh, generally what i te- what my minimal effective dose exercise would be something very uh, high intensity and with very short uh, rest intervals maybe like this my go to exercise like i think w- that would be like the biggest bang for a buck would be like burpees regular burpees where you go do- down into a deep squat you push yourself into a push up position you do the push up and you, and then you jump back up so that's like a very strenuous exercise and it's quite difficult especially if you do it like a very at a very rapid pace so when i'm when i'm usually like traveling or if i'm short on time then my go to exercise or for the day can be even as little as 5 minutes of burpees of doing maybe like 100 burpees with some you know resting very little in between sets and that's going to be very you know well enough for that but also maybe like simply if you were to do it at a restaurant or something uh you can maybe yeah ho- hold some isometric contractions or something that that may be activating these glute 4 receptors and e- easy exercise easy exercises for that maybe like holding the horse stance with your feet you know sideways and being in this like a deep squat holds or doing something like the planche which uh, will also you know activate uh, the muscles in your shoulders and upper body mostly yeah yeah i'm also showing here just a simple wall sit a simple wall sit would be would be actually pretty good to do in um in a restaurant you can even go to a toilet <laughs> and do something yeah. like this yeah totally um so let's go back to the health effects of this so you're obviously doing these things for um for a purpose for also to make sure that you're shoveling most of the glucose that you're then getting into muscle growth. But if we look at the health effects of this autophagy, uh, um, so what it contributes to is stronger immune system, uh, better cardiovascular function, uh, prevention of type 2 diabetes and fatty liver. Um, with the strengthening immune system, you can you can better fight off infectious disease, cancer, and yeah. you can also prevent neurodegenerative diseases uh, and, and things related to, to premature cell death, um, inflammation and aging. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's so true that uh, autophagy is linked to uh, most of these things related to aging in general. And one of the let's say one of the uh, best contributing factors to it is uh, that it can also maintain your mitochondrial functioning as you age. So there's this theory of that uh, one of the reasons people age is that their mitochondria become more dysfunctional and uh, the mitochondria are the powerhouses of your cells that uh, that produce energy. So as you age, your mitochondrial functioning is going to drop and uh, that's, that is also going to you know be this domino stone that is going to lead to all of these other age-related diseases and issues so with autophagy you can actually start recycling those those mitochondria that are that are damaged and that are slowing you down and you're going to convert them back into energy so this there's this additional process called uh, mitophagy which is like basically mitochondrial autophagy so yeah that's going to be keeping away the bad stuff that is causing you inflammation and uh slowing you down and using those those uh, you know building blocks back into you know new 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 things that are gonna get, that that can be used as like new building blocks. So one of the reasons it's it's like an accumulation. People accumulate a lot of waste, and uh, because of poor nutrition habits and because of poor nutrient timing, 
uh, they're going to inhibit the recycling process as well. So they're constantly accumulating. So that's one of the biggest reasons why the uh, general diet in the West for the mainstream people is going to be very thing that is, isn't going to support their longevity. Right. Um, I'm actually showing here an image of mitochondrial health. So in this image, you notice how caloric restriction combined with physical activity leads into the activation of mitophagy and mitogenesis. And yeah. that leads into, um, I guess, lower inflammation and, and better stem cell function. And then you have um, uh, the, the better mitochondrial function is related to the, the ability to deal with reactive oxygen species, basically low-level inflammation. And uh, if, if this process doesn't work very well, <clears throat> or you have reduced physical activity, uh, deregulation of hormonal activities, then an inflammation that can lead into premature aging. Yeah, that's, that's true. Okay, that's it for the live stream clip. So the topic of my speech at the Biohacker Summit is going to be about balancing mTOR and autophagy with, with some more practical advice about being more mindful of when and how you activate them. If you're not able to come to the summit, then you can also get all the video recordings with the live stream ticket. There's like six hours of speeches and presentations about holistic health optimization. I'm going to leave a link to the show notes for a 20% discount code for that. So check it out. It's going to be legendary. Next question. Does Bulletproof Coffee stop autophagy? Take the grass-fed butter. Well, the rationale is that because Bulletproof Coffee consists of only fat, it's not going to raise blood sugar or insulin, and therefore it's going to keep you in a fasted state. It's true that it's true that adding butter to your coffee will keep you in ketosis, and it's going to maintain some but I'm afraid that it's still going to inhibit autophagy. Autophagy is regulated mostly by fuel sensors such as AMPK, mTOR and ULK1, which are monitoring the nutrient status in the body. If you run out of exogenous energy, then the body starts to mobilize its endogenous resources and converts a lot of its own weak cells into new energy. The biggest interrupters of autophagy are glucose, insulin and amino acids. Once you deplete your liver glycogen, you're going to start producing ketones and you're going to begin to show first signs of some autophagy. That's why you can hypothetically say that because Bulletproof Coffee doesn't raise liver glycogen, it's not going to interfere with autophagy either. However, the overall nutrient signaling is a lot more important than the composition of macronutrients. Fat is still a source of calories and energy that's going to signal the body the presence of nutrients. Fatty acids and ketones can still raise insulin a little bit because the body wants to use them for energy and storage. High amounts of fat will also raise mTOR because of their energy density, which can signal the body to grow again. Fatty acids can also be converted into glucose through the process of gluconeogenesis by breaking down triglyceride molecules into glycerol. So whatever the case is, bulletproof coffee with butter, coconut oil or MCT oil will definitely interfere with autophagy to some degree. I can't believe! But is it gonna shut down autophagy completely? Well, that would depend on the amount of calories consumed and how your body responds to it. If you add like 500 calories of fat, then that's definitely gonna kick you out of a fast state and stop autophagy. 
if you consume like 100 calories, then you may get away with it. It also matters what's the overall energetic status of your body. If you're sitting on a couch and drinking bulletproof coffee in the morning after having slept in your bed for 8 hours, then your body is in a state where it doesn't need any excess energy. You've been sedentary for so long and there are no real energy demands on your muscles that you can't cover with endogenous production of liver ketones. In that case, drinking that coffee will have a much bigger effect on autophagy because your homeostasis for nutrient signaling is much lower. You'll get a bigger nutrient signaling effect from smaller amounts of calories because your body's energy demands are much lower. If you were to take that same bulletproof coffee and drink it maybe at noon time, then you've already moved around, taken a long walk, maybe had a workout or you've done some chores, then it's gonna have less of an effect because your body will be under higher energy demands. In that case, your ceiling for nutrient signaling is higher because the calories you would consume would be allocated into use much more effectively and they'll be burnt off faster. You may still interfere with autophagy a little bit, but not to the extent as you would when you drink that same coffee with the same amount of calories in the morning when your body doesn't need that much energy. Fact is it. This can be taken even further. If you do intermittent fasting for longer and then you have a much bigger meal later in the day like 1500 calories, then you'll definitely interfere with autophagy much less than if you were to eat two meals of 700 calories each. By the end of the day, your body will be that much more depleted and the food you do eat won't have that much energetic load to inhibit autophagy completely. It's almost like your body is still shocked from the catabolic stressor of fasting and because of that, it's not gonna turn off autophagy completely either whereas eating two meals is enough to say that okay, we, get, we got enough nutrients and we don't need to keep recycling our own cells through autophagy. In the case of eating once a day, I would say that you would still maintain higher levels of autophagy during the meal and you're gonna maintain it after the meal as well because the body will use those calories for the mere essentials of energy homeostasis. Of course, if you eat too many excess calories, you will still stop autophagy, but if you do it in a very small time frame like with OMAD and one meal a day, then you're gonna go back into it much faster as well. That's amazing. Now, I don't have any real evidence or studies to prove these claims, but this is my hypothesis and it makes sense from the perspective of nutrient signaling. All calories send a signal of nutrients, which is going to inhibit autophagy at a dose-specific manner. However, how big of a signal it's going to send and what's the effect depends on the body's overall energy demands and what's their metabolic homeostasis. Too many excess calories in any situation will shut down autophagy and it's going to raise mTOR. But that amount of excess calories after which you shut down autophagy is much lower during the first parts of the day than it is in the evening because during the day you'll be burning more energy and you're going to cause some catabolic stress. Calories aren't just calories and drinking 100 calories of bulletproof coffee right after waking up may have a completely different effect on the body and nutrient signaling than drinking that same amount of calories in the afternoon or after a workout. This some serious gourmet shit. Boom. So we can drop the mic over there or we can drop the bulletproof coffee right there. <laughs> but you know, this may seem like going far too deep into the details, but I think it's still important. If you're skipping breakfast and doing OMAD with bulletproof coffee in the morning 
while expecting to get autophagy and not getting it because of breaking the fast, then I think you would want to know about it. Most of the life extension benefits of fasting come from autophagy. The other benefits like improved insulin sensitivity, fat loss, stable energy and mental clarity can be achieved with this bulletproof keto fasting as well, but you may be still getting less autophagy than you think you really are. You may also go back into autophagy faster by drinking that coffee and staying there for the rest of the day, which in the long run doesn't pay that big of a difference, so it depends on your choice. I myself prefer to not have any calories at all until the later parts of the day, so I would avoid the distraction of food, and so I could also keep myself in deeper autophagy. But sometimes I may have, you know, a cup of coffee with some MCT oil, some raw cacao and cinnamon, in the afternoon, not not in the morning, but in the afternoon, most of my mornings are still kept in deep fasting. And uh, I do think that it's much wiser to, you want to prolong the ingestion of calories at least a few hours after waking up so that you would allow cortisol to do its job and uh, make yourself more sensitive to calories and mTOR. It wasn't the cough. But that's it with this question. Next up, when someone wants to gain weight and muscle, which one of these things is more favorable to do? One, bulk on a high carb diet and then switch to keto once you reach the target weight. Or two, get into ketosis from the start and try bulking on keto. So, bulking on carbs versus bulking on keto. It depends on how fast you want to build muscle and uh, what are your overall goals. If you want to get jacked really fast and gain a bunch of weight then you can definitely do it very fast with a high-carb diet. On keto, it's gonna take a bit longer. Whatever the case may be, you want the main driver of your muscle growth to come from resistance training and getting stronger. If you eat a lot of carbs, but you're not that diligent at the gym, then you're not gonna make it more effective. You're simply gonna get fat. Likewise, you can get progressively stronger on keto with enough time. The only difference may be that on a high-carb diet, you can exercise more, more intensely, but exercising more won't speed up muscle growth. There are many ways you can structure your workout routine around these different variables like intensity, volume and frequency, and they all determine how you're going to reach your goals. No diet is going to save you from a poor workout routine or not getting enough recovery. In principle, you can eat whatever you want as long as you trigger the muscle building signal with resistance training and you drive protein synthesis with eating enough protein. The other calories are secondary and uh, they don't play that big of a role. Combining carbs with protein is gonna spike insulin a lot more and it's gonna contribute to increased protein synthesis. But protein synthesis is gonna peak at, after a certain point and you're not gonna gain more, more of an effect from spiking it higher. If you compare bulking on carbs versus keto, then I would say that it's much easier to get fatter with carbs than it is with keto. Even if you eat a surplus of calories on keto, it's easier to stay leaner and progressively build lean muscle. If you first bulk with carbs and then go keto, then you're also going to experience a bigger weight loss effect because you lose some of that glycogen and water. That's why you will definitely look more fuller and more vascular on a high-carb diet than on keto. It's those carbs and glycogen that is simply going to make you more vascular. If you lean bulk with keto all the time, then you'll make incremental improvements all the time and progressively building lean muscle without having to really go through these periods of bulking and cutting.
I myself have been doing lean bulking on keto for like four years ever since I started and uh, I haven't even actually tried to specifically build muscle or at least like massive amounts of muscle I've been simply focusing on getting stronger eating enough protein and uh, gradually seeing like positive improvements in my body composition over the course of these four years I've gained like eight kilograms of lean muscle and uh, I've never been you know that fat I've never lost the six-pack and uh, it's all been quite good Honestly, I don't even think that it's a good idea to bulk at all. You would want to focus on lean bulking uh, and by lifting weights, getting stronger and eating at a very small surplus. That's already going to be enough for you to build muscle. Like with protein synthesis, eating extra calories won't make you build more muscle because of that. Any more than 500 calories is probably contributing mostly to fat gain, not muscle growth. As a longer lifestyle change, I think it's it's better to eat low-carb keto all the time and then add in the other strategies like the cyclical or targeted ketogenic diet. This way you're gonna still stay keto adapted and you're gonna build muscle easily as well. Bulking up with carbs and then going back on keto and then bulking up again with carbs is gonna make the transition process of swapping back into ketosis much more difficult and it's much easier to simply add those carbs on maybe a few days of the week and still stay relatively in ketosis. So, instead of going straight to a high-carb diet with eating several high-carb meals all the day, then I think it's much better to either incorporate one of these strategies. One, the targeted ketogenic diet, where you consume a small amount of carbs during the workout and focus on building lean muscle by getting stronger. Two, the cyclical keto diet, you eat low-carb keto throughout the week and you have a refeed day with high carbs on some of your heavier workout days or three you do carb backloading where you eat low carb during the first parts of the day keep yourself in ketosis suppress your insulin and after the workout you're gonna have some carbs those carbs you do eat will be much more appropriated for muscle growth all of those strategies are much better than the eat high carb all the time approach it's gonna make you more insulin sensitive, it keeps you keto adapted to some degree, you're gonna have more stable energy, you have to eat less frequently, you'll be able to work out hard and you'll be able to build lean muscle without getting fat. These strategies can work best for powerlifting, bodybuilding, crossfit, endurance, triathlon, whatever the sport may be and you're gonna see great results, honestly it can work for any sports. One thing I want to add is that to promote muscle growth, you'd be much better off by increasing your protein intake a little bit. It's very difficult to build muscle with the standard therapeutic keto macros like 80% fat, 5% carbs and 15% protein. Instead, you should increase your protein up to 25-35% to and uh, lower your fat a little bit because it's going to support protein synthesis more. This is what the keto gains method looks like and uh, I, I agree with the recommendations. For muscle growth, you don't need a lot of carbs and you don't need that much fat either, but protein is definitely something you need for building new tissue. Leucine is the most powerful amino acid that uh, drives protein synthesis and it can be found in mostly in eggs, whey protein, some cheese and meat. If you add some intermittent fasting into your bulking schedule, then you're going to keep the fat off even more and you will also prevent excessive mTOR activity. It would be much better for longevity to focus on building muscle through resistance training, not nutrition per se. You want to have more muscles because you're stronger, not because you eat more calories and more carbohydrates. That's definitely more optimal for body composition as well as longevity. 
for me, I don't have any desire to get so big and build that much muscle that uh, I can't achieve it with keto. It's, it's been a gradual process of lean gains throughout the years, and uh, I don't even get fat from it. Fat? I don't get fat from having to bulk. I don't lose muscle from having to go through cutting, and I feel amazing. The best thing about it is that you can use these different versions of keto, like the targeted and cyclical keto diet, and to still build a lot of muscle very easily without having to go for a high-carb approach. And that's what the next question is also about. How many carbs is a good amount before working out on the targeted keto diet? And is dark chocolate a good source of them? Also, how long before I work out should I consume those carbs? So, the targeted ketogenic diet is a version of keto where you add a small amount of carbs during your hard workout and then you eat low carb afterwards. Generally, you can get away with as little as 5 to 10 grams of carbs. Any more than that isn't really necessary and you would have to be working out especially hard or long for that. Some endurance cyclists or triathletes who are doing keto, they can consume up to 50 to 100 grams of carbs during the race and still be in ketosis because they're burning off that glucose. For an average 60 to 90 minute weightlifting session, you can only use 5 to 10 grams and it's more than enough. If you're doing like powerlifting with longer rest times in between sets, then you may not even need those 5 grams and you can happily perform with maybe just some protein or amino acids. If you're trying to burn fat with HIIT or cardio, then you would want to avoid the TKD carbohydrates as well because it may inhibit ketosis during exercise. Currently, I myself, I'm not using a lot of intra-workout carbs with TKD because I'm having slightly more carbs in my post-workout meal. But if I were to eat more low-carb, then the 5 to 10 grams is a good amount. The best thing about it is that those small amount of 5 grams will give a much bigger boost in performance on a low-carb diet than if you were to be eating high-carb all the time. You're gonna feel the effects of those 5 grams much more because you're more sensitive to them and you're gonna shift into higher gear. There may be also some placebo psychological boost for tasting the sweetness, which is gonna make you more alert. As far as the sources of carbohydrates go, then the best ones are things like a half of a banana, one rice cake, one boiled potato or maybe one fig. You can also take 5 to 10 grams of dextrose powder. The key is to have easily digestible and fast-absorbing carbohydrates, so you would burn through them faster. But what about dark chocolate? Yes, it can work because it has some sugar and a bit of caffeine, but dark chocolate wouldn't give you a similar effect as dextrose would. Dark chocolate is already a keto-friendly food, and you can eat it at any time of the day without interrupting ketosis. There's no need to time-restrict dark chocolate specifically for the workout, like you would with a banana or some dextrose. If you do use it for a workout, then I would recommend eating like 2-3 to three square pieces of dark chocolate, so that you wouldn't cause any digestion issues during the workout. When it comes to timing your TKD carbs, then the best time would be to take them during the first sets of your lifts. This ensures that you're already activating the GLUT4 receptors on your muscles and directing the glucose into the cells. If you take the carbs too early before the workout, then you may experience some hyperglycemia and you may get kicked out of ketosis. What I would do is do my warm-up in a fasted state and consume the carbs during my warm-up sets. By the time I'm doing working sets and pushing the envelope, 
the carbs will be in my system and I'll put them into use right away. After the workout, I'll wait about 1-2 to two hours and have a low-carb keto meal with some good proteins that uh, promote protein synthesis like eggs or meat. And that's the basic blueprint of it. It's quite simple and it's definitely very sustainable, especially if you're trying to train hard on keto while managing insulin and blood sugar. I have a book, Target Keto, that goes specifically into the targeted ketogenic diet, but it's also included in Keto Bodybuilding and the KetoFit program, so you can check them out. I'm also going to play you this clip from my biohacking bootcamp workshop about uh, optimal nutrition, and this clip is going to be specifically about carb backloading, so I think you'll definitely love to hear it, and uh, it's, it fits this topic specifically. So carbs aren't all bad and they can be used in different circumstances but the best time or the only time you would want to be consuming carbs is in a like uh, it's called carb backloading which basically means as is that you, you consume carbs only in a post-workout scenario when your body is depleted of glycogen and uh, those carbohydrates will be used much more efficiently to replenish the muscle glycogen stores and uh, instead of you know raising insulin for too long or instead of flooding the past three so carb backloading is basically involves eating low carb or doing intermittent fasting for the first parts of the day staying in the fat burning zone for longer and uh, then working out or or even you don't it's, it doesn't require working out either you can do it like but you simply carb backload all your carbohydrates into the dinner and uh, that's the only time when you do is spike your insulin and again it's only for a brief moment and you can fall back into fat burning mode by the next morning. So that's the only time I would ever recommend anyone to consume carbohydrates, even if they're not doing keto or they're not doing paleo or something. Just, just do it once a day and uh, limit it to that uh, particular time frame so that you could be in the fat burning mode for longer. And very simplistic flowchart of carb backloading is that uh, if it's not dark or if it's not dinner, then you don't need carbs, and if it is dark or if it's dinner time, then you simply eat carbs and be done with it. Uh, Sim, why, why is this? Why backload load the carbs? Does it connect it with improved sleep quality or melatonin or metabolically? Mm. If, yeah, if we have the carbs later in the day, what's the, the thinking about it? Yeah, like, uh, well, first of all, it's, it's, it's the aspect of uh, you're gonna support insulin sensitivity with the fasting in the morning and keeping it low carb. And if you do it until the dinner time, then you're gonna be quite insulin sensitive. Your body will be really ready to use those carbohydrates very fast. Mm -hmm. So that's the aspect of it. Then there's also the thing of the post-workout when you're adding an additional stressor to your body and depletion, which your body will be wanting to use glucose. So that's the second one. And the third one is also that if you do eat carbohydrates, then like uh, it may lead to still like this sort of a relaxation effect that's gonna make you more calmer and soother. So people tend to register that when they eat a big bowl of pasta, then they feel one of they feel like they want to go to sleep afterwards, and uh, that's the reason because of the carbs they're gonna release this uh, neurotransmitter called serotonin in the brain. So serotonin is the relaxation hormone. It's gonna make you more calm, more relaxed and it's going to make it put you out for the night and it's, it's much more convenient for people to yeah, use those carbohydrates as 
as uh, as ways of promoting sleep and uh, relaxation in the evening. Yeah, that's cool. Let's say you haven't worked out that day and your sleep happens to be really good. So you're on the keto, like on the ketogenic diet, you're getting awesome sleep, um, and you haven't counted the weights that day. Is there a, any benefit to doing carb backloading or not if you're not trying to improve sleep quality and you're not trying to rebuild uh, glycogen stores? Um, it may be like it may it can actually you know boost metabolism metabolic rate increase it and uh, it can definitely increase your metabolic flexibility as well to know how to use different fuel sources but uh, i i would recommend i would still if in, in my personal preference i would still use only carb carbs only in a post workout setting, setting and if i haven't worked out then i would simply want to take advantage of it of uh, staying in a fat burning state for longer and uh, pushing the ketosis aspect and then maybe having a, like a bigger buffer zone, bigger depletion whenever I do the carbs afterwards, uh, after the workout. So I think, I think it's much, much more effective in that, in that sense. Okay, so boosted metabolism, maybe improving sleep yeah. and optimizing recovery. Yeah, yeah. That's helpful. If you want to support this podcast, then you can head over to my Patreon account. I'm not planning on getting any sponsors, at least not for the near future. And I think that using the Patreon services is a much better option. You can simply pledge like $2 a month and you're going to get some worksheets about some fundamental strategies for improving your health and your mindset. And I'm also hosting my biohacking bootcamp uh, workshop videos on my Patreon. So if you do become a Patreon then you can see all of those six hours of content about different biohacks, biohacking your circadian rhythms, nutrition, exercise, your, and uh, learning how to understand uh, your body's biofeedback processes. So it's like um, quite amazing. But other than that, if you found any value from the show, then the least you can do is leave a review on iTunes and other social media platforms. And you can also share it with friends because word to mouth is the most powerful way of uh, referring. I've been putting a lot of effort into making these videos and podcasts and articles and books and I'm doing it for free. So your support would be greatly appreciated because one of my most valuable resources is my time. And uh, if I'm able to sustain this podcast for longer through the help of my Patreons and my listeners, then I'll definitely keep on making it. But if I'm not, then I prefer to use my time for some much more greater use and more effective use. But yeah, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind.